Well, if you have a Bible with you, some fashion or form, I invite you to open or turn there or get there to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament and chapter 5, Paul's letter. We call the book of Ephesians in chapter 5, which this last paragraph of chapter 5, where we'll be this morning, is likely familiar uh, to many of you. It is considered the, perhaps the grandest statement in the Bible on marriage. However, our purpose this morning in looking at this text is not to mind all the riches and application it contains about marriage, because there is much here, but to see it in connection to our series on biblical complementarity. That's the series we're in. This is part 17, God's Grand Design. We've been taking a whole Bible look at God's creation of mankind as male and female, two sexual kinds, equal in worth and personhood, made in His image, but distinct and complementary in design and function. And I have saved this text, Ephesians 5, to the end. Next week we'll finish. We'll just wrap up this whole series. So I've saved this text to the end because it is the clearest, most explicit, unequivocal statement and application of complementarity in the Bible. And the most profound. It reveals something that heretofore has not been made explicit. A reality and meaning of marriage that is breathtaking. The mystery of marriage. It's my title now. The mystery of marriage. And I'm just borrowing right from Paul's words out of here, out of this text where he mentions this Mystery is great. The mystery of marriage. By that, I do not mean that marriage is mysterious and you can't know it or figure it out. But mystery in the way that Paul in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere uses mystery as something that was hidden or concealed in the past, only hinted at, but now has been revealed fully in Christ. That's the mystery. That's part of marriage that's here. Let me read the text for us. If you have your Bible, you can follow or you can follow on the screen right behind me. The text will be there. Ephesians 5. We're going to start in verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 33. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect or reverence her husband. Amen. Just reading those words is both inspiring and convicting this morning. Let me say a word about context like we normally do. We have not been in the book of Ephesians, just launching in here in the middle. So a couple words about context of which we find this paragraph that I just read. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul declares, this is the first note, just give you two notes here. Paul declares that God's overarching in-time goal is to bring all things back together under the headship of Christ. This becomes kind of a theme of his letter. He declares that God's overarching, eternal, in-time goal is to bring everything in heaven and on earth back together under the headship of Christ. And so he begins this letter to Ephesus with this long paragraph, a really long sentence, one of the greatest sentences ever, of just blessing and thanking God for his manifold riches of his mercy and his grace in Jesus. And right in the middle of that, he states this overarching purpose, which becomes kind of the theme of his letter that he's going to unfold. And if you, if you have your Bible there, you can just turn back with me to chapter 1 and look at verses 9 and 10, where he states this, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He says, in all wisdom and insight, he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will. So here's that word mystery that shows up again in our text on marriage. The mystery of his will. That is, this is something that has been hidden, concealed, shadowed, hinted at, but now it's fully revealed in Christ. He has made known the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is in Christ, with a view to implementation of this mystery in the fullness of time. So the fullness of time has come and God is implementing this mystery. What is it that is? Here it is. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. Everything is going to be summed up in and under Christ. Everything. Christ is the focal point. That's the mystery now that has been fully revealed in Christ. That's where all of history is moving. That's what this is all about. It is all about Christ. Now this summing up has already been inaugurated with the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. So if you look at the end of chapter one, he talks about that, that right now. So look at verse 20. 
speaking of his resurrection, he raised, God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So that's right now he's seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So right now, Christ is reigning. God is putting all things under his feet and he is head. See the word? He is giving him, that's where I get the word headship, under his headship, his rule, his authority. And he's giving him as head to the church. This is what all the history is about. This is where it's all moving. It's all summed up in Christ under his headship. Now hang on to that. Because marriage, marriage is somehow part of this program, plan of God. It's really remarkable. That's what Paul's going to come to in Ephesians 5. It's connected to his theme. Now, as Paul begins to unfold this truth and our part in it, that right now we belong to Christ, and he's going to unfold this this mystery, that right now we can be reconciled right now to God through Christ by faith. He begins to unfold that. He comes to the section where he begins to give, you might say, the practical implications or living out and walking worthy of this gospel. And that really brings us to our text in Ephesians 5 as we get closer to our context. So here's, here's one more note of context. As those, you and I now, reconciled to God in Christ and filled with the Spirit, that's who we are, our relationships include proper submission to authority. So he's unfolding what, what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as those we've been reconciled right now. We've been indwelt by the Spirit. He comes to it in chapter 5 that this includes proper submission to authority. So look with me just before our text, back at verse 18 of chapter 5, where he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit's been given. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, just like we've been doing this morning, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So Spirit-filled results in being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, when he says that, verse 21, be subject to one another, he doesn't mean some thought he met, some kind of mutual submission, as if it's exactly reciprocal. No, to submit means there's one in authority and one is submitting. It's the meaning of the word, to place yourself under authority. So there's the one in others, someone's in authority and someone is submitting. That word, submission, there, is always one-directional. It's not mutual. It's one-directional. Someone's in authority and someone's submitting. So what does Paul mean? S be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, then he's going to flesh it out. Verses 22, starting verse 22 and going through chapter 6, verse 9. He's going to give the relationships where this 
authority submission apply and where proper godly submission is called upon. So he gives three relationships, three categories, wives and husbands, children and parents on this Father's Day, slaves and masters. He can tell you what he means by submit to one another. Now, those are never reversed. It's never parents submitting to children. It's never masters submitting to slaves. It's never husbands submitting to, to wives. And in the analogy, we'll see in a minute, it's never Christ submitting to the church. He's the head. So he fleshes those out. And it's in that context that his instructions on marriage are given. But as he does that, as he's highlighting this submission, he also addresses and instructs the one who has authority, the one in authority, the husband, the parent, the master, the employer. And actually, in our text, he will spend more time on the husband here. So there's the, the context of which he unfolds what I think is probably the greatest paragraph on marriage in the Bible. So let's come to it. The mystery of marriage, as I said, is my heading here and my title. Now, as we come to Ephesians 5, what is new or unique about this instruction for wives and husbands is Paul's use of the analogy of Christ and the church. You see that as we read it. The analogy of Christ and the church. That's what makes this so precious, this text. Doesn't do that elsewhere in instruction to marriage. But here he does, because we'll see it becomes his main point. In this analogy, he gives three truths about Christ and the church and then connects them to husbands and wives. Three truths about Christ and the church serving as an analogy for the relationship of husbands and wives. So let me just note those here by kind of way of overview they all begin with the word as, because he's making a comparison. So his first one, the first truth about the church, as he says to husbands in verse 23, husband is the head of the wife as, here's the first, Christ is the head of the church. As Christ is the head of the church. So there's the truth. Christ is the head of the church. So the husband, in this comparison, the husband is the head of the wife. Now we've already seen that word, head right? Headship. We saw it in chapter one. Christ is an authority over the church. Yes. Christ rules. Christ reigns. Christ is the head of the church. So it implies he's leader. He is ruler. And yet he's quick to add. Do you see it there in verse 23? He himself being the savior of the body. He's quick to add something that doesn't apply to husbands. Only applies to Christ. That is, husbands are not saviors of their wives, but he wants to, he wants to add this. Christ is the head of the church, but remember, he's the savior of the body, which colors his headship. It's a beneficial headship that he has. Beneficial, good headship, because the one who is the head is also the savior of the body. So there's, there's the first truth. Christ is the head of the church, and so he's going to connect that to husband being the head of the wife. Second truth, as the church is subject to Christ. Here's the second truth. Now it's about the church. The church, us, we are subject to Christ. He's the head. We are in submission to Christ. And he's going to connect that to wives. Wives, be subject to your husbands as the church is subject to Christ. 
That's the analogy. And so as you think, how is the church subject to Christ? Joyfully, Lord willing, joyfully, willingly, wholeheartedly. I ask you, is it fearful at all to subject yourself to Christ? Isn't it for our greatest joy to subject ourselves to Christ, right? There's nothing scary about that. It's wholehearted. It's willing. It's not demeaning. It's not stifling. No, it is joyful. A.T. Lincoln, commentary on Ephesians, puts it this way. The church's submission to Christ, what's it mean? It means looking to its head for his beneficial rule, living by his norms, experiencing his presence and love, receiving from him gifts that will enable growth to maturity, and responding to him with gratitude and awe. And Paul says, he's trying to make the analogy. Wives, you submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ. There's your example. There's your analogy. Then the third truth. As Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church. And I keep it in past tense there. Yes, Christ loves the church right now. But Paul says, Christ Loved, verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He often uses past tense because he's referring to the cross. That great demonstration of love. So as Christ loved the church, husbands love your wives. There's your analogy. There's your standard. There's your example. Tremendous. And it's this point that Paul gives the greatest detail. He just kind of launches off. Forget about husbands for a while. Let me tell you about the love of Christ, right? That he has shown to the church. And he develops the nature and goal of his love. And husbands, we're to love as Christ loved the church. Incredible. And then one more thing under this love. It's still under love, but it's really a fourth as, so I'll put it as a fourth bullet. As Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, his body. As he's talking about love, he's actually going to command husbands to love their wives twice. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And then he develops this idea of husbands loving their wives as themselves because guess what? We are one body. Husbands and wives are one flesh. So he's basing this on Genesis 2 that he's going to quote that the essence of marriage is this one flesh union. And because we're one flesh, husbands, love your wives as you love yourself. Because she is yourself in that sense. You are loving yourself as you love your wife. And no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. So you do that for your wife. As you love your wife, you're loving yourself. That's what he's trying to bring out. But then he brings it right back to Christ. You see it right at the end of verse 30? Just as Christ also does the church. There's that last as. Just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. We are one with Christ. We are in union with Christ. So that's what Christ does for us. He nourishes and cherishes his body. And so husbands, also your wives as your very selves. So there, there's the analogy. Powerful analogy. That is... 
powerful, it's tremendous. And it's that analogy that helps more than anything else to define and describe the nature of the relationship between husband and wife. Do you want to know what it's like? Do you want to see it? Look at Christ in the church. That's what he's saying. So what a very helpful analogy. Now, let me just offer two observations about that analogy. Because remember, I'm not trying to unpack everything he says here about marriage, but relate it to our study on complementarity. Let me, so let me offer you these two observations. Here's the first. This analogy only works in a complementarian view of husband and wife. This analogy only works. It's only useful. It's only true in a complementarian view of marriage or of husband and wife, right? The whole basis of this analogy is there's a distinction in the function and relationship, a headship and submission. If there is no distinction, if roles are interchangeable, as our egalitarian friends like to assert, if there is no headship, if there is no submission, then there's no analogy. It breaks down. It's completely broken down. It is meaningless, right, at this point. So just note that as we've been studying this whole view of complementarianism, the basis of this analogy is based on that very view. And that's why I'm coming to this text at the end, because with all due respect to those who have an egalitarian view of marriage as saying there are no distinctions, it's all interchangeable, this text is a juggernaut to that view. It is. And you either have to dismiss this text and say, ah, it's just a cultural relic. Or you have to so redefine the words, like headship doesn't mean headship, and submission just means mutual love. You have to so redefine it that it no longer means anything. So that's first. Just connect it to our series. Here's a second observation. In Christ... Biblical headship and submission are restored, not overturned. Biblical headship and submission in marriage are restored, not overturned. So what I've argued in this series, as we looked at the opening of Genesis, that the fall of man, man's fall into sin and subsequent judgment and curse, did not create headship and submission. It distorted it. It didn't create it. Again, there are those who want to say headship and submission comes out of the fall. No, it comes out of creation. The fall definitely distorts, brings ruin. Sin enters. Especially, especially this distortion, we saw it in Genesis 3, connected to the man and woman's primary roles or responsibilities. But now, in this gospel, now that this mystery has been revealed, Christ has come and Paul speaks about marriage, he does not say, all of that's over. There, there's no distinction. It's all, there's no headship and submission. No, it's, it's restored beautifully in Christ. And now, that relationship is defined most beautifully by Christ in the church. Because that relationship Husband and wife, headship and submission, is based on creation, not the fall. So look back at verse 23 of our text. After Paul says to wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. 
He doesn't need to explain that. He doesn't need to defend it. It is based on creation. And we've seen this so many times in our study. I want to keep repeating it. But he's just, he knows that. He just says it. The husband is the head of the wife. That's a truth. But now that headship has been so restored. Right? It's now defined by this analogy. And, and what does this analogy help us? When it comes to husband and wife and this headship submission roles, it guards, doesn't it? This analogy guards against the abuses of headship. Husbands, we're to love and lead like Jesus. There's no abuse in that. There's nothing controlling in the wrong way. It guards against it and it guards against the demeaning, resentful submission. Because wives, we submit like the church does to Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. So this analogy is so powerful. However, however, there's something more profound at stake here than just an analogy. We might think as we read that that Paul is merely using a very helpful analogy to help illustrate the nature of the marriage relationship. As he's thinking about marriage, he's, he's trying to be like a good preacher, at least most preachers, not me, but that use analogies and things like that that are good at that kind of thing. I'm not very good. But they, he's just thinking, what, what would be a good analogy to use to help people understand headship and submission? I know Christ in the church. That would be a good analogy. It's a great analogy. <laughs> but it's so much more. The analogy is actually the reality. And that's how he ends. So let me show you, because this is the main point of Ephesians 5. Look, look with me down now at the end, verses 30, 31, and 32. And, and notice what Paul does. He's been using this analogy, but now he's going to give more meat to it, you might say. After saying in verse 30, he's talking about this Loving yourself, love your wife, you love yourself uh, because they're one flesh or one body. And he says in verse 30, Christ does the same because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2. Because of this, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and shall become, they shall become one flesh. Now he quotes Genesis 2, 24, which we have seen so many times in our series. I have said that's the most foundational statement on marriage in the Bible. It's both the institution and definition of what marriage is. So you see it quoted all through the New Testament. And that text provides kind of the substructure of what Paul has been saying about marriage. Husbands and wives relationship, one flesh relationship. But here, interesting, Paul uses that verse to support verse 30. Verse 30, because... We are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We are members of his body. We're one with Christ. And that's seen in Genesis 2, 24, in this one flesh relationship. That's interesting. He explains it in verse 32. After quoting that verse, he says, This Mystery is mega. It is 
significant. It is great. This mystery. Again, he doesn't mean, he's not just saying, oh, isn't marriage so mysterious? He's using mystery just the way he did in chapter 1 and the way he does in chapter 3. Something that was concealed and now has been fully revealed or made explicit in Christ. And he's seeing in marriage and he's seeing in Genesis 2.24, there's something concealed there that now with the coming of Christ has been revealed. What is it, Paul? Well, he says it. I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. You say, I thought you were talking about marriage this whole time. Well, kind of, but I'm really talking about Christ and the church more so. <laughs> I am speaking with reference for Christ of Christ and the church. It's amazing. Paul devotes so much attention to marriage here, I think, because it speaks of Christ and the church. And that's what Paul wants to talk about. That's the theme of this letter. So connect now this marriage, this mystery of marriage, now revealed that it's about Christ and the church, connected to Paul's theme that I started with. That this mystery has been revealed, that all things are being summed up under the headship of Christ. And Paul says, did you know marriage talks about that? Did you know marriage speaks to that great reality? Do you know marriage is part of that reality that is now here? That's his connection. It's really, really tremendous. It speaks of Christ in the church. So let me move from the analogy of Christ in the church to the typology of marriage. The typology of marriage. And we've used that word throughout studies here at Crossroads, type or typology. A type is just a person, a place, or thing, normally in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, that is an outward shadow or picture of some coming reality in Jesus. So it's a copy, it's an outward form, it's a type that has an antitype that is in Jesus, and the reality comes. And that's what marriage is. So let me give you a couple things under the typology of marriage. Because it is really breathtaking, I think. Christ and the church is the ultimate reality of which marriage is but a temporary metaphor. Christ and the church is the ultimate reality. Marriage is simply a metaphor, a temporary metaphor. So it's not just that he's using an analogy. No, this is the reality, Christ and the church. Marriage is the example. It's a metaphor. You could choose your word here. It's a sign. It's a parable. It's a copy of the original. Marriage is the original. Is Christ in the church? Marriage is patterned after the original, not vice versa. Isn't amazing. This is what Paul's getting at. I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's what it's ultimately about. That's what marriage is about. So think of it. Of all the purposes, God's purposes for marriage, and there are many. We saw them in Genesis 2, excuse me, companionship, intimacy, pleasure, children. Of all those purposes, God's greatest purpose from the beginning was to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. <laughs> That's the meaning of marriage. That's what marriage is about. That's the great purpose of God in designing marriage. The most profound of all human relationships, the marriage relationship, is yet but a picture. 
of something 10,000 times greater. Paul sees that in marriage. He sees that in Genesis 2 as the first Adam took a wife to become one flesh. So the second Adam takes to himself a bride, the church, his people in oneness with him. Oneness with him. Now, again, it's a type, it's a shadow, it's anticipated in the Old Testament where marriage, we saw it in the Old Testament, marriage is used as an analogy often of the relationship between God and Israel, between God and his covenant people. So you see, it's anticipated, but the reality comes in Christ and the church, his bride. So understand that marriage, human marriage, reproduces in miniature the beauty and love shared between Christ and his bride, the church. And especially, and this is what Paul emphasizes, the sacrificial, steadfast, covenant love of the bridegroom for his bride. That's why Paul pauses and develops the love of Christ for his church. That's what's displayed in marriage. Now think of it. That's the ultimate reality of History and the universe. Christ, head over all, to the church, his body. It's where the whole story of the Bible is going. It's where all the history is going. It's the purpose of all creation and all history. It's summed up in Christ and his bride, the church. That reality is so tremendous and so great and so ultimate that God pictures it in the greatest of all human relationships called marriage. That's what your marriage is about. That's what it's for. It's really remarkable. So that, let me just give you one other note under typology. I said it's, it's, it's a temporary sign, marriage is. It's a temporary metaphor. Number two, the beauty, joy, love, and satisfaction of this unending relationship will far exceed human marriage. I mentioned this last Sunday when speaking about singleness. And I said to single people, if the Lord should choose and you never get married, you're not missing anything. Because marriage is only a picture, a shadow of the coming great reality. Marriage is the sign. The reality is 10,000 times greater and more sweet and more satisfying and more fulfilling and what we're made for. Human marriage is temporary and it gives way to the fulfillment. Marriage is just a metaphor. It's just a sign. Oh, it's beautiful. It's precious in this life. But it's only a pointer to what is ultimately coming. So when you get to the end of the book, the Bible, the book of the Revelation in chapter 19, and when it's talking about this coming consummation of all things under Christ, how does it speak? Do you know how it speaks? Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper, and the bride is adorned. That's you, that's me, that's the church. We're adorned, we're made ready. In fact, he goes on in chapter 21 of Revelation and uh, 
He says to John, let, let me show you the bride. You know what he shows him? The new Jerusalem. <laughs> this eternal, in all of its splendor and brilliance and perfection. It's the bride. It's us. Say, so how, how do we get to be that bride, that beautiful bride like that? Well, we'll look back at our text in Ephesians 5 and just notice what Paul says as he expounds upon this love of Christ. Verse 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, here's how we get to be this bride adorned in beauty, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself, the church, and all her glory. Christ does this. He sanctifies us, sets us apart for God, and he cleanses us. He washes us. He cleanses us with the word. That's the word of the gospel. This good news, Christ's death and resurrection. And his goal is to present, notice, he might present to himself. Christ is going to present to himself the church because it's all Christ's work. It's all what he does. And he'll present us in all her glory. And I love this. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He just uses the image of a lovely young woman. All right, you worried about wrinkles and spots as we age that show up out of nowhere and wrinkling well, guess what? The bride in her beauty has no spot, wrinkle, or any. She is in perfection because of Christ. She is unsurpassed and unmatched. And he's speaking about a moral, spiritual beauty, holy and blameless. That's what Christ has done for his bride. Jesus, stop and just relish, savor. What Christ has done for you, for us, for the church, in choosing us as his bride and cleansing us, taking us from filth and sin and perfecting us in his image. Is that true of you this morning? Have, have you been cleansed by the word of the gospel, by Christ? Are you part of his people? Are you part of the bride this morning? Again, it's nothing you do to clean yourself up. No, he does it. It's through faith in Christ. He's your savior, the savior. It's through faith in him that you become part of his bride and he does the cleansing. Is that you this morning? Because that's, that's the greatest reality. You can have the best marriage in the world and if you miss this, you miss it all, right? You miss everything. Oh, be sure it's true of you. So there, there's the main point. <laughs> the mystery of the marriage, that it is just a sign to the coming great reality. But now let me finish, and I'm completely out of time, but let me speed right through here. Just, just a word about practical implications. Outworking. And I'll be really short here because we've already talked about marriage and <clears throat> relationship in marriage. And it's kind of what Paul does as he gets to the end and he talks about this profound mystery. And then verse 33, he says, nevertheless, there is some practical implication. Let each individual among you love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. There is a practical implication. So, so just if you can grasp this, if you can take this away this morning, this profound reality of what your marriage really means and what your marriage is about 
should infuse our marriages with a meaning and significance really beyond comparison. That is breathtaking. That you, that you have it down in your soul that my marriage is a picture of the greatest truth ever in the universe, Christ in the church. That has to affect how we view and live out marriage. It just does. Do you have that view of your marriage this morning? What the Bible says. Christ and the church is more than just a useful analogy. It's a very helpful analogy. It's actually the paradigm or the reality that is to inform our marriage. So, so just as this great reality of Christ and the church, our marriage is a sign of that great reality that's here and coming but that great reality works back this way and is to inform our marriage and how we live it out right now. And so that's what Paul has been talking about. We are to live out these God-prescribed roles and relationships in this metaphor to be a picture of Christ in the church. Again, that's why I come back to this complementarity. It has such significance. It's not arbitrary. The roles and relationships in marriage are not arbitrary or interchangeable. It's part of the picture that God designed from the beginning. So here are the two commands. Again, I won't belabor these because we've seen them in other places. One, wives, submit to your husbands as Christ submits to the church. He doesn't need to explain that. If you want to know what that looks like? Think of the church submitting to Christ. Why? Because the husband is the head of the wife. It's just creation design of God. It's God's design. The analogy of Christ in the church. This voluntary, wholehearted, comprehensive submission. So I'll put it this way. I'm going to borrow... Part of a definition from Kevin DeYoung. He has a helpful little book called Men and Women in the Church. I think we have copies. I recommend. He uses these three words. Support, respect, and follow your husband's leadership and authority. Use your gifts to help. Encourage, don't compete. Affirm and honor, don't tear down and abuse. Respond to his lead, don't undercut. And do it as to the Lord. That's how he starts. Wives, submit to your, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. That is out of obedience and ultimate submission to Christ. This is your obedience to Christ first and foremost. And your submission to Christ. Yes, there are limits to submission. We've talked about all those when we were in First Peter 3. Your ultimate submission is to Christ. So wives, submit to your husbands. Second, husbands, love your wives. Isn't that interesting? Just like we saw in 1 Peter 3. <clears throat> Although Paul has said the husband is the head of the wife, when he comes to command the husband, he doesn't say, husbands, rule your wives. Husbands, exercise authority. He doesn't even say, husbands, lead your wives. Now, it's implied in headship, I know. But his focus is on love. And he commands it. Love your wives. Because it involves an act of the will and not merely an emotional response. 
I sat under a pastor during seminary who would tell me that uh, often when someone would come for maybe marital counseling or their marriage was in a difficult place and the husband would say something like, I just, I just don't love my wife anymore. And he said, my response is, that's obvious, now start. It's like, wow, <laughs> I don't think I'm coming to you for marriage counseling. But, <laughs> but he meant by that is decide to love her. Because they were coming with this, oh, I just, I've fallen out of love, right? I don't have that effect, that emotion. Start loving her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's your standard. There's the model. What's the model? The sacrificial, sanctifying, nourishing love of Christ for the church. It's the opposite of authoritarian. It's the opposite of demanding and controlling and self-centered. Lay down your life. That's the kind of love we're called to. Like Jesus, lay down your life kind of love. Commitment, what's the goal? The commitment to the total well-being of your wife, especially her spiritual well-being. The commitment in your leadership, in your love to her total well-being, but especially her spiritual well-being. Nourish and cherish her like your own body. We spend so much time on our own selves, our own body. Paul's saying, that's how you treat your wife. You nourish and cherish her. And your goal, yes, you're not your wife's savior. No, you're not. I'm not. But the goal is the same. It's her holiness. It's her sanctification. That should be your great aim, husbands, in loving your wives. More than external beauty, we saw that in First Peter, it is her sanctification, her holiness, promoting godliness. Husbands, I think generally wives will flourish if you love and lead like this. And if your wife's not flourishing, flourishing in her role as wife and mom and spiritually, look first to yourself, husband. That's part of this headship in leading. What a glorious gift marriage is. Oh, I can't go through all the application. Do that in your small groups or with others. Read it through. But may this text both inspire and convict and give us hope. Your marriage is about something so much greater than you. So live it out to his glory. Let me pray as we finish. Father, what a breathtaking view of marriage as pointing to and picturing ultimately Christ's sacrificial love for his bride and our sanctifying, cleansing relationship to Christ. Help marriages on this Father's Day. Help fathers to lead and to love well. Help wives with glad submission to know what that means as the church to come alongside and support and help and find great joy. May you be glorified in our marriages and may they speak so wonderfully of Christ in the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.